Hi, this is Jeremy Gritton, art director and story lead for Ori and the Will of the Wisps, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 40 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, July 12th, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we welcome creative director and founder of Sabotage Studios, Thierry Boulanger, to discuss his work on The Messenger and more. Microsoft has made bold statements in their belief of how gaming generation should change, and Ubisoft gifts us all with a bit of normalcy in 2020. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And before we get started this week, I want to offer a quick word of thanks to two wonderful people who took the time out of their days to brighten my day. The first goes to Snowbike Mike, who has had endless words of encouragement since XEP began, and seeing him pop up on Twitter and on Twitch uh, with kind words yet again just absolutely made my day. So thank you to Snowbike Mike. Uh, And an equal sound of thanks to Bill Coniglio, who's always writing into the show, but also took time out of his day to go to iTunes and write a review. And I really appreciate that, Bill. I hope you're doing well, uh, and I thank you for what you're doing, man. Let's get to the news now. Quite a bit to talk about. We've had a few weeks of of downtime where news seems to fade a bit, but it's ramping up. We know for a fact that July 23rd is the date for Microsoft to have their big showcase. They'll be showing off Halo Infinite. They'll be showing off a number of other Series X titles, some of them from Smart Delivery, some of them to be exclusive. I, for one, cannot express just how excited I am for July 23rd. It feels like it will be that Christmas in July moment. We've seen what Sony has to offer. We've seen a number of different showcases from IGN and GameSpot, Devolver Digital, etc. And I'm ready for for the big one for this particular show and for this ecosystem. I'm ready for Microsoft Microsoft rather to show what it is they've got up their sleeve in order to compete going into next gen. And it's generation that is the key word here because Microsoft has stated that their beliefs about next gen run a bit counter to the strategy that Sony's had. Now, there's a lot to break down into this, and I looked to a couple articles, many of them from GameIndustry.biz, but a few from other places like GameSpot and the like. Uh, let's, Let's go with the basic principle here. Microsoft believes the generational strategy runs a bit counter while Sony doubles down on the idea that they want a definitive, distinctive difference in their generations between PlayStation 3 and 4, 4 and 5, etc. Whereas Microsoft's offering a more blended approach. And Phil Spencer had a few insightful comments that we'll get to in just a minute that highlight the difference of philosophies here. And if you're thinking to yourself right now ahead of time, oh, I really do want a difference of generation like Sony, or, oh, I really do understand what Sony or Microsoft's trying to do and I believe that's the way to go, uh, take a step back from those two talking points and allow yourself some perspective, allow yourself some time to consider why both might have validity, where both might falter a little bit, and let's analyze and approach this with a bit more of a tempered approach. For Sony, uh, they've been doing the same thing for the past 25 years or so. They had the PlayStation 1. 
Then they had PlayStation 2. That had backward compatibility, worth noting. Then they went to PlayStation 3. Distinctive generational differences between all three of those things. Each one operated differently, with the PS2 having the Emotion Engine, PS3 running cell processors. Backward compatibility began to fade for them in the PS3 era. They stopped putting it in altogether because it was existing on a hardware level. And then when you went from, from 3 to 4, there was a distinctive jump as well in just what those systems could do on the Sony side. And Jim Ryan talks about that in a number of statements to the press, uh, discussing what it is they're trying to do to differentiate PS4 and PS5. They want more power, they want more uh, showcase lighting events, and they want zero load times. Xbox's platform is a bit different. They recognize the validity of having different generations, and I would argue the OG Xbox and the Xbox 360 are huge, massive leaps between the two. But Microsoft made emulation approaches to backward compatibility with the Xbox 360, and I would say it had uh, mediocre success there. Then they come out with the Xbox One, which I would argue falters major on its launch. The Xbox 360, a very strong generation, Xbox One launched terribly, and that's why they got so many cheers when they announced that backward compatibility was coming to Xbox One, and it really seemed to mark the turning point for the Xbox One branding and Xbox as a company that was down-spiraling at the time. Their approach to generations being blended versus, uh, I suppose, the, the right ways to be separate has, I would argue, a bit of validity in, in recognizing that there's a reference to backward compatibility on both fronts here and there as they go forward. However, the machine's that, that come out do something distinctively different from the machines prior. The, the, the Xbox One is significantly more power than the three, powerful than the 360, as is the PlayStation 4 to PlayStation 3. We are going to see that same thing happen with Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5, but the way they go about it and how they want to move customers to that is a bit different. It's very clear that Microsoft is absolutely fine allowing people to take their time moving into the Xbox Series X generation by way of smart delivery, which won't really matter two years from now, but it's a great marketing tool and a great way to ease people in by way of the fact that many of their exclusive Xbox Game Studios titles will be available on Xbox One and the Xbox Series set of devices uh, in the first year of development. That's exciting as well. They're letting people to move in there, but they're also highlighting services as a pillar peak of their franchise. They've got consoles as one pillar. But then they also have Game Pass as another pillar, which is already 10 million plus strong. And you think about how much a Game Pass subscription costs. Even when they're giving it away for free, it's when it rolls over that it starts to generate the revenue. You've got Game Pass as a pillar, consoles as a pillar, and then xCloud as the unknown pillar that it seems to be they're banking on going into the future. This allows people to adopt that generation at a much uh, slower pace and yet still be involved in spending dollars in the ecosystem. Sony, for their part, does not need to worry about this on the same level because they've got 110 million PS4s out there, and people are still going to be spending money. There's no way they can sell that user base right away into PlayStation 5. So they're going to be generating revenue as well. Both Sony and Microsoft have generated record amounts of revenue in the, in the past four years. So there's no reason to panic or, or freak out or get upset over any of these differential, 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 different uh, generational approaches by either. But let's continue into some quotes and some ideas here. The key uh, for, for Xbox 
going forward? Is there smart delivery marketing and the intent to capture gamers into an ecosystem by any means necessary? You've got Game Pass. You've highlighted it. You're getting it all the way into 2022. You're likely to stick with us for that amount of time. Oh, this game's coming out on all platforms, but it's launching into Game Pass. I'll stick with it on Xbox. That's their method of adoption. That's how they want to, to make it happen. It's important that Xbox has been extremely profitable in the past four years despite being considered losing this generation. That's a pretty great way to do it. If you're making revenue and, quote, losing the generation, there's something to, to, to say about that. Sony's been impressive in unit sales, been impressive in single-player adventures, and no one can argue that either. The cool part about this, though, is that unlike many generations prior, in this era of video games, with being the most profitable entertainment industry on the planet, you can lose and still win. Whereas that wasn't necessarily the case in, in generations prior. This, the days of Sega and Nintendo going head-to-head -head and one being a definitive loser no longer happen on the same level. But let's talk about what Phil Spencer said. He highlighted the differences in philosophies with smart delivery, with the Lockhart, and with the Series X. And specifically, this, these comments begin at the idea that a Lockhart or smart delivery might hold back the Xbox Series X and keep users from experiencing the very best of what NextGen has to offer. And quick note before I read these quotes, the best of what NextGen has to offer is nowhere in sight at this moment. You do not see the best that the next gen has to offer until several years in. It takes time for developers, first party or otherwise, to learn the machines, learn the capabilities, and learn how to best utilize those technologies. When you look at any launch system, any launch system, and the slate of games that comes out with it, they are, tip they are very far surpassed by the ones that come out at the end of the generation, or at the very least midway through it. As much as I loved Infamous Second Son, Sony's doing some very special stuff well past Infamous Second Son on their side. And Xbox, their launch slate included, what, Sunset Overdrive, Titanfall 1, uh, Rise, I suppose you could argue? Well, anything that Xbox Game Studios has put out since and has demonstrated that they better understand their machine, with the exception of Crackdown. But that has a lot of other baggage that we don't want to talk about right now. So there's something to be said here. But let's move on to these quotes that I, I've referenced several times but not shared with you. All right. In regards to the next gen being held back by the previous gen, Phil Spencer says, quote, Frankly, held back is a meme that gets created by people who are too caught up in device competition. I just look at Windows. It's almost certain if a developer is building a Windows version of a game, then the most powerful and highest fidelity version is the PC version. You can even see that with some of our first-party console gaming going to PC, even from our competitors, that the richest version is the PC version. Yet the PC ecosystem is the most diverse when it comes to hardware. And when you think about the CPUs and GPUs from years ago, that they are. Yes, every developer is going to find a line and say that this is the hardware that I'm going to support, but the diversity of hardware choice in PC has not held back the highest fidelity PC games on the market. The highest fidelity PC games rival anything that anybody has ever seen in video games. So this idea that developers don't know how to build games or game engines or ecosystems that work across a set of hardware, there's proof point in PC that shows that's not the case. That said, we're shipping Xbox Series X this year. 
I'm playing it every day at home, and it is different to playing on an Xbox One X. We should applaud the work that goes into working on an SSD and the work that is going on with audio, and to pick some of those areas that Jim Ryan and Mark Cerny and the stuff that PlayStation is focused on. We should applaud load times and fidelity of scenes and frame rate and input latency and all of those things that we focused on with the next generation. But that should not exclude people from being able to play. That is our point. How do we create an ecosystem where if you want to play an Xbox game, we're going to give you a way that you're going to play it? End quote. Goodness gracious, I love that approach. Not only does he acknowledge his competitors' well-meaning and impressive uh, impressive sets with the SSD, with audio, because Mark Cerny and his team have created an incredible machine in the PlayStation 5, but he also highlights that if an owner or user has a PlayStation 5, they're able to experience it, but if they don't have a PlayStation 5, they are held back from playing those particular games. And I like the idea that he's saying if you've got an Xbox, you can still play those games that Xbox Game Studios is creating. You're not held back by your wallet or timing or family circumstances, what have you. You can still play Halo Infinite with your friends. I know for sure I'm playing Halo Infinite on an Xbox Series X when that system launches and when I get my hands on it. But if my best friends maybe can't get their hands on it or finances have hit them, or maybe they choose Lockhart because it's a cheaper alternative and they, they bought into PlayStation 5. No problem. I'm still playing Halo Infinite on the best machine possible for my choice, and I'm playing with my friends on a machine they chose as well. It doesn't matter to me how many frames per second they're enjoying a game or how many pixels they've got on their screen. It matters my personal experience. That, to me, is the greatest joy of gaming, is choice. I have talked many times on XEP that cost, catalog, and choice going forward are important. And yet again, Microsoft doubles down on recognizing that choice is a powerful factor. I do not care if my friends play on a Lockhart, play on an Xbox One. I don't care if they play on an Xbox Series X. I care that I play on an Xbox Series X and that I get to play with my friends. End point. End point. I was in Sea of Thieves the other day. Had an absolute blast in Sea of Thieves. Uh, we had crossplay enabled. We were seeing PC players. Did it damage our experience? Not at all. We had a blast. It was a good time. And that's the best part about video games is that you have a choice to play. And so I like the approach by Microsoft here. I also appreciate very sincerely that Phil Spencer recognizes, as the Xbox team recognizes, that Sony's doing great stuff over there with audio. Great, doing great stuff over there with loading times, and that they are pushed to compete with that even by achieving certain aspects with different hardware. I, I like that idea. So props to them. Uh, and that is my favorite part of gaming, that we are all treated to incredible experiences. And however we get there on whatever platform we get there, I don't mind. Let's just enjoy it together on whatever platform we choose. That's the best part about gaming. More reports coming out about the WB acquisition. Of course, we knew from rumors in last week's episode that WB was being shopped by AT&T for a reported price of between $2 billion and $4 billion. And there's a lot of strong speculation that Microsoft was going to be in there along with Take-Two, EA, Activision. But now we have official confirmation, no longer in the rumor mill, that Microsoft is involved with discussions with WB. Now, mind you, they are competing with other companies to acquire WB Interactive, but they're in the running officially. They've put their hat in the ring. They've got the money to do it, and it's a matter of logistics, legalities, and discussions, uh, and seeing what they're willing to put forth next to other studios as well. Phil Spencer has made statements 
multiple times in recent weeks about Xbox not being done at bringing game studios in. And there's a lot to break down in this, and I know we touched on it last week. We're going to go into it a bit more now. He said Xbox is nowhere near done bringing in studios, which makes sense when two of their three pillars are based on services, xCloud and Game Pass. You need content to fill those out. So it makes sense that they would be seeking out more studios past their initial 15 that they've got at the moment. Now, whether or not they pursue WB is a bit more of a, a conundrum because there's a lot of finances involved in that. But I could see them bringing other studios on for, for sure, uh, one of them being referenced in a, in a question later on in the show during Q&A. But there are some quotes that Phil Spencer yet again has, this time talking with, I believe, gamesindustry.biz, I believe it was GameIndustry.biz, uh, and, and highlighting a, a few points here. He says, We have really strong support from Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, and Amy Hood, the CFO. Quote, that's a, that's a chief financial officer for anyone who's un, unsure. Uh, begin quote again. And there's been no signal that we, would, that we should be slowing down, but just to go at a pace that is maintainable for us as a leadership team. We're always out there talking to people, but it has to be the right opportunity. The Game Pass portfolio and subscriber base continues to grow. We're launching a new console. Last year was our biggest year ever on PC in terms of revenue as Xbox Game Studios. A lot of the business is doing really well. So we're always in the market for new opportunities with studios. End quote. It's encouraging, guys. It's very encouraging. If you are of the mind that WB Interactive should, of any of the choices, go to Microsoft, then I think you've got uh, a bit of reason to celebrate on a small scale here. There's a lot to take in, but I like the idea that of any of the, the choices they push through. I would also argue that we have to acknowledge COVID's role in the entertainment, video game entertainment industry, gaining even more profit in recent months, because as people turn to video games as a source of entertainment, revenue goes up for all. There's, there's something to that, and I think we need to acknowledge it. It's the most lucrative business, entertainment business on the planet is video games. And if Microsoft is making money hand over fist, that probably strengthens their resolve to move forward with that. Now, as a reminder, it was reported on Reuters, GameSpot, Windows Central, uh, that we believe AT&T is requesting between 2 and $4 billion for WB Interactive. Microsoft paid roughly $2 billion for Minecraft. And in this deal, if they were to go the deal with WB Interactive, they would acquire Avalanche Studios, known for Disney Infinity and Cars 2, Monolith Productions, which made Condemned in the Shadow of War games, NetherRealm Studios, known for Mortal Kombat, Rocksteady Studios, known for the Arkham series, TT Games, which is all the Lego stuff, Playdemic, which makes Golf Clash, it's a mobile title, WB Games Montreal, New York, San Francisco, and San Diego. They worked on Batman Origins, and they're a bit spread out. And lastly, Portkey Games, which makes the mobile titles for the Harry Potter franchise. That's a lot of studios to bring in. That's a lot of talent to bring in. Instantly, you get super talented studios in NetherRealm and Rocksteady, and I would argue WB Montreal is up there as well. You get the family-friendly approach with Lego stuff. You don't all you don't get all the licenses, and we've seen with regularity that Microsoft is willing to publish on third-party platforms if it is indeed lucrative. I would expect that to happen if they acquire WB Interactive overall. I would expect to still see Lego games everywhere. I would expect to see Mortal Kombat everywhere. Perhaps not the Killer Instinct stuff. Maybe you get some exclusive content on Xbox, but the idea that, hey, we'll sell you Mortal Kombat for 60 bucks on any platform, but you can get it day and date in Game Pass, that's an intriguing idea. That's exciting. 
However, you must acknowledge that with studios, no matter what studio or how great it is, does come baggage, and we'll see where that ultimately leads. Uh, the hope, though, is that WB is not sold as a whole over to EA or Activision. They each have a track record of consuming talent and then shutting them down. Even Raven Studios, who once was very proud and powerful, is now reduced to, to support roles. I don't want to see that happen. Uh, Bioware is a shell of what it once was, and EA is not solely to blame. There's a factor in that. We've seen signs of life from EA allowing Respawn to do what it does with Jedi Fallen Order and the Titanfall franchise, but they also damned the Titanfall franchise to, to mediocrity when they put it next to Battlefield at launch and sandwiched it in between, oh goodness, one other title, uh, Call of Duty and Battlefield. Yeah, they put Titanfall 2 between Call of Duty and Battlefield, meaning that one of the best games of the generation, one of the best shooters overall ever made, was left into to marketing obscurity there, and that's not fair. So EA is probably not the best place to go. It would seem that Microsoft's track record is the best of the available options when it shows their willingness to publish on other platforms, to allow studios to make the games they want to make, and execute on their visions. I'll tell you this, guys. They let they let Ninja Theory publish Bleeding Edge. That game was not good. It did not do well. But they allowed it to happen. Sure, go ahead. Throw it in Game Pass. We'll support you on that. Finish making your creative vision so that you can flex your, your creative muscles and then make the games that, that are going to sell major. They did the same thing with Outer Worlds. They're allowing Outer Worlds from a previous deal, mind you. There's a legality in that. I recognize that. They published Outer Worlds everywhere and were not bullish on it. They didn't hold back content from PlayStation or Switch or anything else. So there's, there's a, a good reason to believe that if WB Interactive goes to Microsoft... Uh, those involved and the gamers as a, as a response to that will be treated well there. So my hat is in the ring for Microsoft to grab it, not because this is an Xbox show, but because of the those that are involved in, in bidding for WB Interactive, I think that's the best result for gamers. And overall, I think by default, it'll be a good result for Xbox Game Studios. To say nothing else about the year 2020, it has been trying and difficult, and you could go down a rabbit hole of discussions there in the gaming industry and outside of it. However, as gamers, we were at least gifted some sense of normalcy this past week, as an Ubisoft game leaked ahead of its surprise reveal at Ubisoft Forward. I will tell you what, for the past decade, it seems, uh, an Ubisoft game has leaked ahead of its reveal uh, with regularity, and that sense of normalcy was lovely to see. Far Cry 6 leaked ahead of Ubisoft Forward, which by the time you're listening to this episode, Ubisoft Forward has taken place. I had to record several hours prior to it. However, we do know quite a bit about what's going to happen there anyway. And I'll show you a few predictions and you'll be able to judge and see if I was accurate or not. Uh, yeah, Far Cry 6, it's out there. And oh man, oh man. Okay, so it's become a meme of sorts that we all just expect games to be leaked. And you have to hate it for the teams involved. However, there's a short clip that shows Breaking Bad's Giancarlo Esposito smoking a cigarette with a, sh a short message saying that we'll see more of the event. That is an incredible actor. You've seen him in The Mandalorian. Of course, you've seen him in Breaking Bad or, or Better Call Saul. Do you see him in Better Call Saul? Now my brain's uh, fuzzy on that part. But a great actor, yet again taking the helm in a a major Far Cry title. But what's interesting about this is twofold. First, it leaked, and the social media team took it in stride. Bravo to them. They said Anton is disappointed, but we'll see you at Ubisoft Ford. Very cool. I'm excited for that. Ubisoft Ford's one that I have mixed feelings on, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But what's interesting is they showed the box art for Far Cry 6. And in it, you see Esposito's character 
standing behind a young child, who many are speculating to be a young Voss from Far Cry 3 due to some facial scarring above his eyebrow. That's interesting because the Far Cry games, love them or hate them, are, are typically not very well connected to each other. Far Cry 3 seems very distinct and different from Far Cry 4, from Primal, from 5, and they seem to be very much isolated experiences. If this is indeed a Far Cry prequel, well, there's something to be explored in that. I, for one, loved Far Cry 3. I thought it was one of the best games on the Xbox 360. I thought it, su it surprised everybody with its like late December release, and I was pushing, this is at the time I had to work at GameStop, I was pushing everybody to try this game out, some incredible moments. The formula began to wane after Primal. I enjoyed Far Cry 4. I enjoyed Far Cry Primal, but by 5, I didn't enjoy 5. I would argue 5 was the most divisive of any of the Far Cry games where people liked it or didn't like it. And it, it I don't know that it was the setting, the writing, the ending, whatever it may be. Uh, the game, to me, felt very bloated, and I did not enjoy one aspect of the Far Cry games that surfaced in Far Cry 5 far more than any of the others were the drug trips. Typically, the user or the player, I should say, uh, is exposed to drugs on some level, so you see hallucinations, because hallucinations and drugs allow you to have a lot of gameplay options. As a creator, it allows you to cheat with physics and stuff far beyond the regular game. So there's some cool gameplay approaches to this. However, in Far Cry 5, I felt that I could not go from point A to point B without being distracted by six different things keeping me from my objective. Many of them were unsolicited, unwanted drug trips where I just was removed completely from my objective. And that really frustrated me as the player that I couldn't accomplish my goals or even make headway towards my goals because of them. Now, whether or not that takes place in Far Cry 6, we have no idea. I would argue we see it at some point. I would argue that it, it does show up. But I'm, 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 oh, what's the right way to put this? I am, I'm excited for Far Cry 6, but I'm very cautious about my approach to it very cautious about my approach to it. We've got a lot of games launching this fall. Many of them we know about, many of them we don't. If Far Cry 6 is an Xbox Series X launch title, I'm sure I'll play it. But next to Avengers, next to Halo Infinite, next to the rumored Batman game, next to goodness Second Extinction and some of the other titles that are coming out, like do I want to do I want to go down another Far Cry 6 if the formula is the same? I don't. I don't. So we'll see what happens. Ubisoft Forward, again, taking place just after recording due to timing. And uh, we'll find out if I'm right. But the formula needs to be different. That's for sure. Uh, nonetheless, uh, real quick, got to say, uh, sorry for the Far Cry 6 team that had their, their project leaked yet again. Uh, it's got to be a bummer. But we'll see. We'll see what happens there. For Ubisoft Forward proper, I'm not splitting the, the topics. I feel they're combined. Uh, it's taking place. We're expecting to see Watch Dogs Legions, AC Valhalla, and, of course, uh, Hyperscape, something we, we know something about each one of these games. We're expecting to see more on them. Watch Dogs Legion is a bit of a conundrum for me. Uh, there are two tales of Watch Dogs. I enjoyed the first, did not like the second. There are many people who flipped that and really didn't think much of the first one but loved the second one. Watch Dogs has waned in popularity, and Legion seems very up in the air as far as whether or not it'll be well received. It was going to come out already, then they delayed it, and they moved things around. There was problem with the technology, problems with the marketing. Of course, many people remember the grandma that you can hijack at certain points and put in part of your team. There's a lot of reasons to be excited about Watch Dogs Legions. I, or Watch Dogs Legion, 
I am not excited at this point. My hope, though, is that it is a January title. Consider it a launch window title for next gen. Play it in January via smart delivery if you need to. Um, but avoid the crowding of the holiday. Valhalla needs to be Ubisoft's flagship title. Don't make the aforementioned Titanfall 2 mistake where you, you mesh your stuff together and then expect them both to sell gangbusters. No, stagger it a bit. My hope is that it's Far Cry 6 for Ubisoft. Uh, a little bit later on, maybe well past, but Valhalla is their their launch title. Far Cry 6 is maybe March, and then you got Watch Dogs in there in January. That's my hope. That's what I would hope to see happen there. But the Ubisoft formula is so similar from game to game that unless there's something we don't know, I, I don't get overly hyped for them, though I do enjoy playing them. I really loved Assassin's Creed's Origins and Odyssey. I'm going to play the mess out of Valhalla, but I also feel like I know what I'm getting, and that's where I, I stand on a lot of Ubisoft titles. I know what I'm getting. I'm not excited for the, the reveals of them, but I am excited to play them. Here's hoping I'm way wrong. By the time you're hearing my voice, I could be way wrong, and I would love to be way wrong on that. I'm hoping that Hyperscape blows my socks off. Hyperscape looks really cool, by the way, and I hope we get a release date and a console release date at that uh, because it, it, it does look dope. I don't think you're seeing Beyond Good and Evil. Gods and Monsters doesn't seem to be surfacing. I don't think you're going to be seeing... What's that other one? Skull and Bones? Skull and Bones, I think, is dead at this point. Uh, maybe? Maybe not? Again, if I'm wrong, call me out on Twitter. Let me know because you're hearing these, these last-minute predictions. Uh, nonetheless, Ubisoft makes great games. I plan to play great games. That's where I stand. This is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief Sierra 117, with a shout out to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Keep your heads up during this time of isolation. Stay positive. Play some games. Most importantly, finish the fight. Thanks for listening to XEP. Master Chief, out. Several of you wrote in some incredible questions, as you always do, and I thank you so much for those. Uh, let's go first to Todd Oxtra, consistent supporter of the show. Todd, I, I love you dearly. And side note, I'll be on one of Todd's uh, Last of Us 2 spoiler cast later on this month, and I'll drop that link and let you guys know about that later on. Todd says, Where do you see the future of physical games for Xbox? The latest limited-run games have had no Xbox releases, and the UGP is definitely its focus. Uh... Where does this leave the, the collector market with Xbox? With collector's editions, maybe the only way to get physical games. That's a good thought, Todd. I, I recognize your concern there. I don't think Microsoft cares about physical games much anymore. They've always been a software company. Two of their three pillars, Game Pass and xCloud, are based on software and digital distribution. The Xbox Series X is their other pillar, and that doesn't seem to be their primary selling point for their systems. They're not overly worried about selling units, I should say is a better way to put that. So I don't know that the future of physical games for Xbox is promising. I also don't think it matters. That is such a niche market. We love limited run, we love seeing it. It's a really good social media post, but how many people are truly buying physical games? Not nearly enough, not nearly as many as you might think uh, or want it to be. And I think a lot of the times it's old school gamers, older gamers, more veteran, more seasoned gamers, you might say, that are interested in this. There are collector's markets, and I'm not taking that away. But when you compare the amount of a game sold digitally to physical, 
it's just not comparable. So I don't think Microsoft's overly worried about it. Um, I know I'm not overly worried about it. We've even seen Sony do a digital system now. Microsoft already has a digital system. You can expect at some point during this next generation there to be a stronger emphasis on digital systems. So whether or not physical games are acquired by collector's editions or, or it's just cases, I don't know that, that you have much to look forward to in that for the physical side, nor should you. I think you need to let that go, and I don't mean you specifically, but I think it's time to let that go. I look over at my shelf at many of my Steelbook cases. Well, some of them have games, some of them don't because I have the game digitally, and all I wanted was something physical to see, and you can get that in statues. You can get that in any other number of ways. Uh, I, I just don't think the physical game market is relevant there. However, to your point, and a point that Bill Coniglio makes... Microsoft has strict rules for how many games must be printed if they're to be physical, and they should be more flexible on that. They should be more flexible and allow for limited run games or a competitor of them to make physical versions and just say, sure, yeah, if you're if you want to spend the money to make you know a digital co- or a physical copy of this this one game that nobody's really playing but collectors would love, do it. I think that's a great move. They should they should loosen up on that, but it's not their priority and it shouldn't be. I don't feel. Uh, that said, I'm excited for collector's editions for Halo and Batman, and oh, mm, mm, yes, uh, I'm guys. I'm fleshing out my statues, man. I love it. I love it. I love it. Love it. Bill Coniglio does write in as well, and he says, "Would you like Microsoft to acquire Supermassive Games if possible? Their horror anthology development would be a perfect episodic, uh, perfect for episodic games on Game Pass. With more funds, they could have an until dawn level of quality with short episodes each month." That's a great choice, Bill. I think it's a great idea. I don't really have more comments other than to say, absolutely, that'd be a great get for them to have. Uh, they do have a good connection and strong, strong affinity for Bloober Team. There's no doubt about that bringing horror titles, uh, but Supermassive would be a lovely choice to have and to bring horror uh, or help Microsoft and Xbox be known as a horror system. If you like horror games, you'll get this. Uh, I wonder if that wouldn't be an even better idea with the rumor of Silent Hills being PlayStation exclusive going forward. That's a great choice, man. That's a good a good idea. There's not much, not an overly complicated answer to that, but yeah, man, that'd be dope. That'd be a good choice for, for Game Pass. Captain Logan writes in with a, a, a question that I, I think he means in jest, and I'll chuckle at that. He, has, he says, do you want a co-host? And uh, Captain Logan, uh, no, thank you, my friend. I do not want a co-host, but that does give me an opportunity to talk uh, again about the vision of what XEP is. Uh, XEP is a chance for me to solo analyze the week's news and then welcome guests in to expand, hence the, the name Expansion Pass, expand our knowledge of the Gamerverse, bringing in developers and voice actors and engineers and CEOs about various things to expand our knowledge on how the games industry operates. That's the goal of XEP. I love podcasts and, and YouTube shows where there are panels of hosts that discuss and debate things. In fact, I'm a part of several of them. Currently, the Xbox Factor. I'm on with Mr. Boomstick XL every week, uh, along with Archimedes and Mr. Badbit. We, we debate topics back and forth. But in order to set XCP apart, that was a, one of the key kind of concepts was it needs to be a solo show where hopefully I'm allowing people to to operate in a space where they are safe to enjoy Xbox or safe to enjoy video games without being console fanboyish or, or at war with anybody because I don't believe in that. And then offer analysis and expand insight with guests. So it doesn't make sense for the vision of this show to distinguish itself 
and then bring in a co-host and, and become something that's very similar to what is already out there because those shows are great. But I didn't want XCP to be that. Uh, so that was the idea behind the Xbox Expansion Pass. So there's a long-winded answer. It just gave me an opportunity to, to expand on my idea. Now, I will say, guys, Captain Logan is a prominent Sea of Thieves player and content creator. And I had the coolest Sea of Thieves experience the other day. Uh, my buddy Babbit and I jumped in. We, we took on two ghost fleets because they've done some Haunted Shore stuff that is super cool. We battled two ghost fleets. It was neck and neck. Our, our uh, ori, we had a ship adorned with all the ori stuff, so we looked really cool. But we had patched probably over 25 holes at this point Who, to, to repair our ship. We were in shambles, and we're headed back to an outpost with our, our ghost loot. And then we're attacked by a skeleton ship along the way, and it started hitting us and shooting us. Uh, and then while we were battling it, leaking water, part of the ship was on fire. We're shooting back and forth at it. A Meg shows up. And again, these are all random events in the world. A Meg shows up and starts attacking us. So we have to fend off the Meg, fight down the skeleton ship. We ended up killing the skeleton ship, killing the Meg. We got the loot from the skeleton ship. Couldn't get the loot from the Meg because it, it just we were so broken and, and pumping water off of our boat in time. Part We were on fire at one point. Uh, and then we limped our way back to back to, to to an outpost turned in our stuff it was the coolest experience it was on twitch we, we were streaming it over on twitch uh and it was an absolute blast and it was just dope and it just uh, sea of thieves is a special game it may have missed its market launch but it is not the same now it is easy to see why now over on steam sea of thieves is the top seller why it's got concurrent players going up and up and up sea of thieves is awesome now it is just awesome we had so much fun uh and if i'm playing with the host of the trophy room a playstation podcast made by the players for the players if i'm playing for hours with the host of a a playstation podcast in sea of thieves you've got a good game and there's something really awesome to that the last question comes from mr famous Seamus himself famous Seamus says how do you deal with a massive backlog uh famous 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 shamus the most famous shamus i have ever met uh it's easy man I play what I want to play, and then if at any point I get gamer paralysis, which happens to all of us, and I'm not sure what I want to do, what I want to play, what it is I want to experience, easy peasy, I pick a short game. I pick a game and I say, is this one I can finish in six hours or so? And I'll play that. And if it doesn't grab my attention, all right, take it off the hard drive. If it grabs my attention, all right, I play through it and then I check it off the list. Sometimes I have a huge backlog. Sometimes I don't. But I always play what I feel like playing. If that means I'm back in Halo Wars 2 again, I do that. Uh, If that means that I want to play something, want to play something, but nothing's grabbing my attention... That means I go watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine or The Office or Big Bang Theory or something silly and something dumb that I can just kind of get lost in. And I don't worry about clearing games off the backlog. I, on occasion, will rush through a game, Last of Us 2 most recently. will rush through so I can be part of the conversation. Uh, I did that with Gears 5 uh, as well. Sometimes that happens, but I think that we actually hurt ourselves when we worry about it. If you've got a big backlog who, and you really want to clear games out of it, Pick the shorter ones for sure, but try to allow yourself, and difficult as it is, try to allow yourself to just enjoy what you're playing, whatever it is. And if that means you repeat play stuff, fine. There's no rules. No one is truly judging you for for how big your backlog is or for uh, what games you like. If anybody's taking the time to care what you enjoy or what you play, they're not worth your time. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter at all. I learned that lesson with Anthem and Crackdown. I love those games. 
I also love Breath of the Wild, God of War, Arkham, Doom, Titanfall. I love lots of games. I'm, nobody can shame me for what I like. No one can shame you for what you like. So that that that's my long-winded answer there again. Alrighty, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I'm going to send you over to an interview with Thierry Boulanger, the creative director and founder of Sabotage Studios, to talk about my experience with The Messenger. I've been playing The Messenger, loving The Messenger. First half Ninja Gaiden, second half Super Metroid. Uh, It's a really jarring transition, I might add, but a really, really cool game. If you haven't played it, it just launched into Game Pass. I'm going to send you to that interview in a moment, and I hope you enjoy it. You can always find me on Twitter at InsipidGhost. You can find me streaming now over on Twitch at twitch.tv slash insipidghost, and I would love to see you there. You can email me insipidghost at gmail.com. And I would love it if you're able to be like Bill Coniglio. Go rate me over on iTunes or follow me over on Twitch and and, and throw a sub down if you're willing or able uh, because it does help me keep this show going. Now, enjoy this interview with Thierry Boulanger, the creative director, co-founder of Sabotage Studios, and we'll discuss The Messenger and any other things that he is working on. Take care, guys. Have a wonderful week. All righty. We are very fortunate now to welcome Thierry Boulanger, creative director and co-founder of Sabotage Studios 2 XEP for this week. But Thierry, the first thing you have to do before saying hello is properly pronounce your last name for me because I know I butchered it. Oh, it's, <laughs> so it's, a, it's Boulanger. It's, it's just the French word for baker. Well, that is fantastic, dude. You are here to talk about what it is Sabotage Studios is working on now, and also really the highlight, uh, the game The Messenger, which recently arrived into Xbox Game Pass. Uh, Tell me, when did development for The Messenger begin? Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, uh, other than the the, uh, early creative process, which has been going on since I was a kid uh, for this like fantasy world that all our games are based in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Messenger itself was in 2014, I think. Yep, we started working evenings and weekends, just a, a level designer friend and I, uh, who's our level designer at the studio now, of course. Uh, and so, yeah, we just had that as a side project while we kept our, our day jobs in, in uh, working in, in game studios. And eventually it, it picked up enough steam that uh, we recruited a composer uh, who added music to it. And all of a sudden it, it felt alive enough that it should it should uh, be a thing. And so we started a studio basically in 2016. Well, so, yeah, Sabotage started in 2016 and you and, and your team were working at other studios during this time? Or, or before then, in, sorry. In the, so, in the lead up, I should say. Right, right. So the initial team were all people that, or even the team to this day, are people I met over the, the first decade of, of just working in, in, in game studios in, in the Quebec, Canada. Uh, and so just, you know, you meet people cut from the same cloth and eventually you kind of recruit your core team and, and people gather around this uh, stupid idea you've always wanted to put on paper and... and uh, yeah, and then it all just happened. But no, from by 2016, everyone who joined was uh, it was for full time work uh, in a studio. And I gather from hearing you talk about the genesis of this being in your childhood, you guys are a retro inspired. You make retro inspired games. Uh, I think Messenger is often associated with Ninja Gaiden. Terry, is that what what drove you? Was that your original kind of inspiration? Oh, it's a big one for sure. It's the one that that really hooked me to to ninjas. You know, growing up in the '90s, the 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 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were a big deal as well. You know, so all things ninjas, uh, it, it was a big deal for sure. And Ninja Gaiden was just the one for me where I just couldn't get enough. You know, and so 
this idea for a character that wasn't um, not so much of a, a big personality, but rather just a function, you know, the, the shadow, the assassin. That's mm -hmm. something you can easily project yourself into because the character is all hidden, could be anyone, you know, or anything. And then it's more about building the world around that character, you know, so that there's there's special events and a bunch of areas and things going on. Um, but yeah, so for me, it's it's, uh, it's very personal to, to finally be uh, working on these games. You know, it's been a, it's been a long time coming, but uh, here we are. So it's probably not fair to say the game started work four years ago when Sabotage started because you were thinking about it before then. But once you guys created the studio, talk to me about the process for creating the messenger itself specifically. Well, so the, the, the first thing was, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's where the dreams or expectation meets reality, you know. So the main thing, the first thing was uh, we work uh, in prototype uh, a lot and, and we do a lot of uh, iteration, you know. And so a core thing that, that we have as a belief for dev is you should make something pretty until you've made it fun, you know. And so Messenger was for about a year and a half just gray boxes with a stick figure character, you know, that that's even before the studio was founded. And mm -hmm. so I know you've played it. So, you know, the cloud step mechanic, which is our twist on the double jump, which is instead of having a double jump, you have to hit something in the air. And then after you hit something, it, it refreshes your double jump. And so you, as long as you can keep hitting things in between each jumps, you kind of get to go forever. So it's kind of a ninja that looks the part, you know, you're defined gravity and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the core idea, this core gameplay loop of, of combat kicking into navigation and also navigation kicking into combat creates, you know, hopefully fun. Um, the word for that is resonance in French, but I don't know if it makes sense in English. But anyway, so this resonance between those two gameplay loops was the core thing we wanted to test. And so with the prototype, we, we just we were pumping out, you know, like one screen at a time, just all these ideas. And once we had a hundred about 150, we were like, OK, you know, we can sprinkle that over a whole adventure. You know, we we roughly rank them per difficulty, you know, and then we knew we had these these um these ideas to go to that were fun uh, moment to moment, right? As we say, um, that we could have to carry the game. And so, yeah, it's basically what we, what we tested and what we found is that this simple mechanic could in fact carry the game. Yeah, cloud stepping to me was, it was so simple that I couldn't believe it hadn't been done before, but it feels very natural once I get it, because we are so accustomed to double tapping A, that the idea of right. striking something in between, it really does create a resonance and a loop that as you said, drives the game. How much how much work did it take to to make that work the way you envisioned it? You have the idea through the execution. Well, it's, it's, that one was pretty easy, I would say, because it, it came from, uh, I think like you said, like what? why doesn't this exist already, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it just felt, it just made sense. And so trying it out and playing with it, uh, to be honest, that, that took about half a day to make, right? You just, you get really? your basic jump going. Well, I mean, it, it, at that point, I had been a gameplay programmer for about nine years, right? So I, I had done my fair share of, of character controllers and and all of that. And so just trying this idea, putting a, a quick jump together, you know, and then tying it to hitting something, that was super easy to test just with boxes. But then, you know, actually finding the proper metrics of how high you jump, how fast you can attack, you know, and all of that. And that takes forever. But but 
trying out just the first little idea. It's like, is this a toy that you care to play with? Is it engaging if we do a couple of patterns, you know? And it was basically, it was endearing to my level designer friend who said, hey, maybe I'd, I'd want to mess with that. And so he did that and, and it, we, we started kicking in, into each other with, with uh, bouncing ideas, you know, and then it, then it uh, became a thing. But the, the thing that was interesting there is is when you think of, of resonance between gameplay loops, you know, you, the, the, the classic example is you take... Uh, Diablo or, or just the RPG, right? Which is uh, you attack some monsters and so you get stronger and so you attack stronger monsters, you know, and, and then it kind of feeds back into each other and then you keep on going. But the idea with the cloud step was how micro can we make this, you know? It's not like you go for 10 minutes and then it kicks into something else for a minute and then you go for 10 minutes again. It was like every second they, these two systems kick into each other because rarely you're you're jumping and so you're in the navigation space you're just analyzing the layout and the platforms and where to land or you're fighting and so you're just focusing on the monster you know when you push mm -hmm. that to the extremes it, it's games where there's a traversal bit and then there's a combat arena and then there's a traversal bit you know and we wanted to merge that basically as much as possible to the point of all almost making it seamless that was the, the idea we wanted to explore you know fully okay so here's the question that's always dangerous to ask the creator do you feel like you nailed that do you feel like you you executed that vision well <laughs> we're we're happy with it. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think for us, what it was, was, you know, we have a hint that there's something there and that it could be fun. And we just, we build it as best we can. And then we, once it's as good as we can make it, we, we, we show it to other people and hopefully they gather around it, you know? And so uh, we can't really complain with the, the response. Now we feel, at least certainly on the core mechanics, there isn't like a thing that we wish we'd done, uh, we had done differently. It's, uh, we're pretty happy with our controls there. I, it's buttery smooth and pixel perfect, I think, is, a, is an overused term and an mm -hmm. easy term to use. However, mm -hmm. one of the neat things that you guys did with the Messenger was create an art style that oscillates between 8-bit and 16-bit with, with, I think, some give and take in between at certain points. How right. do you start with that cloud stepping and, and these game mechanics that are so simple and yet they have an elegance to them and, and you evolve them but allow the the two art styles to exist almost simultaneously how do you do that like was there difficulty rotating between the two well it's it's not so much because they're, they're when it comes down to it we did again with the thing of the gray box and the stick figure you know well that is agnostic to any 8 bit 16 bit or, or even 3d if we had done the 2.5d you know 3d side scroller mm -hmm. um because those were just the controls and and the thing for us is and maybe that's the background as a as a programmer but for me it was always annoying when we had um for example the animation department saying no 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 you need to take the controller away here from the player's end, hands because I really want that animation to always finish playing, you know? Mm -hmm. And then for me, that the, all these little areas are the, mil, the milliseconds where the controls can be frustrating, you know? So you're not always in control, you know? And so starting with this rule that um, your character controller will go and, and follow your input, and then it's the animation's problem to play the proper thing to to make sense visually with what you're doing and not the other way around, right? So when you start moving, it's not, oh, the, the, the run animation starts playing, you know, and then your character starts moving wh when it kind of makes sense that, that a, a, a leg has, has been moved forward. It's really the other way around. It's, it starts moving right away and then the animation better start, you know, otherwise it'll look like your character is sli sliding. So I think that's something that's that's probably much easier to do with, with um, 
more humble graphics, you know, mm -hmm. you go to 8-bit or 16-bit because you can do a lot of jump cuts. You don't have a lot of blending or transitions in between the animations. Like you can, I, I mean, and not that I know about AAA development, but I feel it would probably a bit harder to pull off because everything has to be so smooth and realistic, you know, all the time where gameplay first has been um, really the only metric. So anything that felt any, any moment in the game, we felt there was, you know, either friction or, or could cause frustration or, or, or not behave the way you would want it to, you know, we, we addressed right away without, you know, any debate. It was like, no, the controls are, are the main thing we're shooting for here because we were hoping for speedrunners to pick the game up and things like that, you know. So we mm -hmm. wanted you to be able to, to um, maximize your skill, if that makes sense. It it does. Now, simple question. Where did you come up with the idea to rotate between two classic art styles of 8 and 16-bit? Well, so the main thing is, is uh, well, first of all, they're, they're the two, they're two very big ones, you know, of where, where personally I come from, uh, you know, creatively, because that's what I was inspired by for, for so long. Um, and the other thing, too, is the story always had the ninja uh, time traveling, you know, and so... And then we always start with the story first. So gameplay is one thing, and then story is the other one. And so where they combine is how do we best tell that story through gameplay? And the the the, the idea that the ninja will time travel to the past and future world was always there. And so then the eight and sixteen bit is is simply how do we best convey this with what we have? You know, uh, being retro is is I think kind of lights a beacon that it tells the players who might be interested in that kind of game, which you were also interested by and, and where it comes from, you know, so they, they know that perhaps we made a game for them, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but then, so for the 8 and 16-bit, it was really just the past and future world. So moving forward one console generation for, for how it was defined back in the day, you know, uh, kind of represents the future, you know. And so in, in the heart of, of uh, just all things retro, that kind of makes sense, I guess. Interesting. That that is very fascinating. Now, you you talk about this pillar of of game mechanics, and I want to come back to that. But you mentioned the writing a bit ago, and or rather, you mentioned the story, and mm -hmm. I want to talk about the writing because it is hilarious. It is self aware, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and it knows where it wants to take you. Talk to me about about when you you came up with your your gameplay stuff on one side, but this mm -hmm. story seems perfectly self-aware uh how did that come about well the the first thing was because I, I i've never been like I, I haven't studied like writing is just something that i kind of had to do you know for the game uh and i knew the story the 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 big arcs that i wanted to tell but in terms of the moment to moment and all of that it wasn't super clear you know i knew of of all the major beats and then it was i think for 2017 at GDC, we had a, we actually got to pitch, show the game to Nintendo, and it was like, oh no, wait, we need to, we need to convey all the the core atoms of the experience, and so that included, you know, entering the checkpoint, and and there's a shopkeeper there, and and you get to uh, buy some upgrades, you know. And, and um, I'm just gonna interject, shopkeeper, favorite character thus far, loving <laughs> the shopkeeper. All right, uh, and yeah, and so for the shopkeeper, I, I, what I did was. Uh, I just I just chucked in the the first I don't know if you you touched uh, the cabinet there but uh, there's kind of like a hidden rent that you can trigger by if you keep on touching it and that's just something you know some Friday night at 2 a.m. I was like just writing and I was like hey what if there was this thing where you you can you can touch the cabinet like 50 times and trigger the biggest philosophical rent that you just 
you sleep through or whatever. And, and I just thought it was funny. You know, the only way that I knew to write uh, really fast was to go unfiltered and not really ask myself how people would take it. And I thought, you know, worst case, I'll just say, look, this is placeholder. We just had to to force ourselves to develop a system for dialogue, you know, and so I just put that there. But then the response was so good to that tone. And then I kind of found my, my I guess, my voice in a way there uh, because I realized, because I, I was writing on a second language, right? And I, I know to be funny, I guess, in French, you know, to my friends. I'm, I, I like to tell stories and share anecdotes and, and, you know, honor my friends in this way. I do that a lot. You know, uh, but then I didn't know that that in English or or for another culture, you, would it ever even make sense? Um, and it turned out okay. And I think that sometimes the 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 choice of word is a bit weird because that's the vocabulary that I know, you know, or that I look up. And so I think that sometimes it's a little bit off the mark, but it makes it a little bit more uh, uh, naive. And I think there's added value there as well, you know. So no, I'm certainly happy with with the reception on the shopkeeper. That's that's great, and it it does have a certain charm to it. I would never have guessed it was a an English as the second language writer portraying mm. that level of humor because it is so self aware. Uh, mm. I love it. Now you're pitching this at Nintendo. This was 2017. Uh, yeah, GDC 2017 was the first the first contact. Yeah. And what is a meeting like that? You know, Nintendo, of course, a big name, but to a, to a, a retro inspired indie developer like Sabotage. What does it mean to be talking to Nintendo on that level? I mean, it, it mean, yeah, it, it means the world, right? It's just the fact that they'll even meet. You're like, oh, wait, really? <laughs> I guess I can never, I can't be uh, prepared enough for this, you know. But then, you know, conversations keep keep happening, and and it was it was way too early, by the way, when we we had that first meeting. But they were like, yeah, cool, keep us posted, you know. And eventually, it showed enough enough promise that we could, uh, you know, we could uh, be with them for the the release of the game. So. Yeah, that's where it happened initially. But it, it was, uh, yeah, I have to admit, you know, it was a bit, uh, not stressful, I guess, you know, I guess in a good way. But uh, certainly there was some, some uh, you don't want to miss that shot, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you launched the game on Switch in August of 2018, late August 2018, uh, and then PlayStation several months later, and then Xbox One more recently. Uh, were there conversations about doing a simultaneous launch? Were there exclusive deals? Like, how do you structure that on a business level to keep the lights on? Mm -hmm. Well, we could have done uh, we could have done a simultaneous launch, but it was you know we were uh, just a team of eight, uh, mm -hmm. and so you know the reality of just doing all these ports was yeah, there's no way you know we don't want to we don't want the game to come out later. We just had the one programmer, you know. I I still did a little bit of of coding, but I was you know so busy with game design and just directing the team and and all the writing that that. I, I coded less and less, and so with just one programmer, there was no way you know we were going to do all these ports. Uh, the other thing too is is you, before it comes out, you don't know how well you don't know that it's, especially with the first title, you know, uh, it's hard to tell whether or not it's going to do any good, or that people are going to pick it up, or that the reviews are going to be good or anything, you know. And mm -hmm. so, without saying that that it was a strategy because we weren't really thinking that far by back then. Um, I'd say that it could still have made sense to hold off on other consoles in case, you know, reviews were terrible and you can maybe fix a few things, you know, and then present it differently, you know, to a fresh audience, you know, mm -hmm. past a certain point or something like that. But uh, no, we're certainly happy with how it, it, it all played out. But uh, at first it was really just, you know, lack of, you know, lack of manpower. We, it would not have been feasible. And in terms of finances, uh, you know, we signed with, uh, with a publisher, Devolver Digital. Mm -hmm. um, that was at, we met at 
PAX South 2018. And so that was really good, you know, because they helped us. Uh, we were tight, you know, on money and they helped us uh, make it to the finish line without having to compromise on the quality. It was not lost on me when I saw Devolver Digital uh, there, another a, right. a publisher rather that is acutely self-aware and has some clever writing uh, of their own. And that, <laughs> that, that connection was not lost on me. Right. Uh, so here's a simple one. Why'd you go with Switch first? There was there was, uh, there was kind of a well, not kind of. There was a natural fit in terms of the the spirit of the game, you know, because Ninja Gaiden being an NES game, you know, and doing the eight bit and sixteen bit, you know, and and uh, obviously Sega not having a console <laughs> anymore, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was kind of like Nintendo is is kind of where it it could have been back in the day, even though of course any don't even have to be a purist to know that would never run on an NES or or Super NES, but. Um, so yeah, there, there was uh, certainly like it, it felt like it belonged there, I guess. And also that was if if you think of of uh, I remember GDC 2017, the Switch was just coming out, right? Yeah, I think it was. On it, fire. it was. Everybody. I think it. it was like a week before it came out, and so the moment you announced anything, you know, the, the whole world was like, oh, Switch, please, oh, Switch, please, you know, and and so. Uh, it, it, it the 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 demand for it was just overwhelming, you know. Whereas uh, in terms of of uh, Xbox and and uh, PlayStation, it was more about you know the HDR and 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 all of that and the hey 4K TVs, you know, supported and, and things like that. And and so it's like yeah, no, we don't have realistic fog or whatever, you know. <laughs> right. I, I'm not saying they would have necessarily turned us down, but I just it didn't really seem right to try and make the case because we knew what kind of game we were, you know, and and what the demand was, and it was overwhelming for for switch back then absolutely it feels like the stars certainly aligned for the type of game you were making and mm -hmm. what people wanted with the switch uh right. and certainly paved the way forward did you look to other retro inspired games i mean in my mind i'm thinking shovel knight were you looking at others okay. in terms of encouragement for which you were on the right track at any point oh yeah for sure absolutely i mean uh, yeah well shovel knight is is uh, definitely a big one uh, and I would say I, I have to say it's it's the main one actually. Uh, you know, it's I just played that game to death. You know, and <laughs> I think it was 2014. I think it came out. And it's still coming out. Yeah, they're still. Yeah, yeah, and it's still yeah. for one. It's crazy. Yeah, it's also coming out every week. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like no, it's still very very big. But no, for sure, the, you know, uh, that that one was uh, was truly a big inspiration. That's great to hear, man. That's great to hear. So, you know, you're you're growing the studio, or seemingly you have more than eight people now at Sabotage, uh, adding people uh, to it. You, one of the things that I didn't touch on as we were talking about the story and the art style was the music. When did the music hmm. come along, uh, and how does that factor into the gameplay experience? The music. Uh, so the music. Uh... So our composer is the only team member who's uh, he's in America, mm -hmm. um, and so he was. So his real name is Eric. Uh, artist name Rainbow Dragon Eyes, and so he's he's been doing chip tune music, like writing music on a Game Boy and and uh, growling over it with a black metal voice and <laughs> uh, kind of like Nintendo Core kind of vibe. And I was into that, you know, while working, I would listen to his music, and so. Sometime in 20, I don't know, 14 or 15 or whatever, I'd tell yeah, Sylvain, my colleague, who's a, a good friend and uh, one of our programmers. Uh, and in this 
daydreaming, you know, I was always saying things like, and we'll have our own studio and we'll make this ninja game I keep rambling about. And part of that dream that would never happen was Rainbow Dragon Eyes will make the music, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was like long before it, we even got together. That was like this guy would make a great, you know, retro soundtrack, I'm sure. And so he happened to be touring uh, our city and we went to his show. And after his set, I, I went up to him and asked him like, hey, man, we're making this uh, this retro inspired ninja game 8-bit and, and he cut me off and said yes I'll make you music and then we just kind of tried to figure it out but that was some two years probably before the studio even existed that wow. uh, we yeah he started working with us and he made the one track uh, it's the one for the the first level of the game the the autumn hills the one with the the like the the high note that mm. stays in your head forever the yeet, you know and yes. so everyone is yeah <laughs> so everyone is memeing that one so uh, you know i've been hearing this track for uh over five years at this point <laughs> oh man i've had the and, thing where i'll be driving and i'm yeah. i'm i've got that beat going in my head oh, it's yeah, so funny yeah he's yeah this guy is uh <laughs> And so once we had that, then it kind of gave life to the prototype, you know, because the moment you you uh, the moment you have sound effects and music, it's kind of like okay, now it's actually alive, you know. Now I'm now I'm 100% feeling what I'm interacting with, uh, and so it was by that time that we kind of uh, we said, all right, let's make it a thing. And uh, so it came in pretty early. I would say Eric is one of the core core team members for sure you know because there were four of us basically working on the prototype so uh level designer level artist and uh composer and then myself so cool so cool so in july of 2019 you released dlc free dlc i believe uh, oh, yeah. the the picnic panic tell me about sure. that why'd you decide to go <laughs> that route why try why not charge for it. Tell me, tell me the process for your DLC approach. Well, I, so, I mean, the first thing is it did more than a hundred times better than you know I, I could ever hope. Uh, so it's the thing is, there was kind of this feeling that that giving back would make sense, you know, uh, mm -hmm. because the response was was really good. And and I come from a place where you know I, I never assumed that anyone will care about anything, you know. And just the fact that we're afloat and we get to keep on doing this for a living, you know, and knowing that our next game was still a bit far out, it was like we need to make something kind of by reusing everything that we put together, you know, that now it's just, you know, basically making assets and, and integrating cutscenes. Um, and the story was written already, you know, for a three-part uh, thing that 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 we could have done as a bigger bigger thing, and so we just did the the, the first act. Um, and it was a bit of a send-off too, because the thing is, it's it's so it's a tropical DLC, right? And so your ninja goes surfing, and then out on a tropical island with palm trees and everything. And it was just basically like, look, the, the ninja deserves a break, and so let's do that. And and then why it's free? It's well, I mean, how much are you going to sell DLC for a twenty-dollar game? You know. Mm -hmm. And so, in terms of the, you know, in terms of the, the the business side thought process. Um, it's like what you're gonna charge your DLC like uh, two bucks or three bucks or whatever, and then you're gonna you're gonna cut in 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 more than in half the amount of people who even play it when it's just supposed to be a celebration, you know. And so, it, it's in two parts. First, if you try to sell it, then then how do you sell it, and do you sell it at a high enough percentage of who 
actually owns your game in the first place you know and then and then how is it reviewed like way more harshly because then is it worth every penny or not or are you good with only the first thing you know and so it's kind of more of like look we're just we just want to have fun one last time with all of you to say thanks so just show up here in good faith and take it for what it is and hopefully you have a good time you know but then we don't have to worry about ah what's the play time or what's the you know we just give you the serving that makes sense because everything we do is is about we distill we never dilute you know and so we don't want to get in this space of oh let's make it longer to bring it to that price or whatever it was like now nah, let's just make it free and make it the best we can do whatever we feel like making you know uh and then we're good and and then you know if if you push the the that the, if you think a bit further then there's also the notion that for some people that were maybe on the fence right mm -hmm. uh because a lot of the game is about deceiving you you know it's it's pretending to be really simple and shallow and then it keeps unfolding and you're like whoa what's going on you know um and so to conveying that value through a trailer is it's kind of a challenge you know and a lot of people have told us after playing it that they would have paid more than what they paid because they had no idea like it was more than three times bigger in scope that that they than what it felt like just looking at the screenshots and and even watching people play for 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 a couple minutes you know um that's, and that's so then, so cool. and so for some people, you add, you chuck in the free DLC, right? Which, well, okay, there I so I won't sell it to you for two dollars, but then how many people get the full game because now they feel like the package is worth it, you know? That's 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 really cool, and and now you're available uh, on Xbox One, mm -hmm. and you're in Game Pass. Uh, how did that conversation start? Uh, we Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was just wanted to say we're Series X as well, by the way. <laughs> well, there's a tidbit it, of info. It's just not a it's just not a it's well I, and I don't think it's a it's a secret, but it's just that we're it's a compatible by by uh, by default because mm -hmm. their uh Microsoft's uh, framework is just that that efficient, you know, so. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about Game Pass. First of all, dope. Thank you for letting me know that. I love that. Uh but tell me tell me about Game Pass. Like that that has changed the conversation. For indie developers and AAA studios alike, what did Game Pass mean for you, and how has the reception been since arriving? Mm -hmm. Well, so the first thing is it's it's uh, one thing that's really cool about the about a thing like Game Pass is it removes the the business conversation between the studio and the player, you know, mm -hmm. which which will always be uncomfortable, you know. <laughs> Because you're asking for money, and then someone someone is is like, should I give it to you? And then convince me. And uh, there, there's something uh, uncomfortable about that, you know. With a thing like Game Pass, uh, you are getting what you need directly from the platform holder to do what you have to do to put it out there. And then the players seemingly get a game for free, you know. Right. And the, and so people write in, and they're like. Man, I paid zero dollars for this, and 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 you know, so thanks for the cool game. And it's like, well, you actually paid for this, you know. You pay every month for your game pass, and and then that gives them, you know, the means to reach out to developers and 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 make sure that the catalog is interesting for their subscribers, you know. And so, but the fact that it's indirect, uh, it kind of removes all the, it removes money from the equation, and then it's just about the games, you know. So I I actually really like that. <laughs> Do you feel I'm, I'm, I struggle with my wording. Uh, That's fine. Have people been 
receptive to it being on game? Are they liking it? Are they, they contacting you about that approach? Or do you guys see a financial difference between selling it on one platform versus Game Pass? That's hard to that's hard to tell. Uh, well, two reasons. Well, first of all, I, I couldn't get into that much, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, I don't know compared to if it were like an initial release, uh, mm-hmm. what that would mean, or compared to, and the other thing too is, is that hadn't been out for long enough for us to properly be able to look at all of this and then and then go like, all right, you know, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. you know, we're, we're not in hindsight yet um, when it yeah. comes to all of that. But for us, it was, you know, we've seen uh, very good success already. We're happy with our game and where it's at and how it's been received and we're on to the next project already, mm-hmm. you know? And so that was something that as long as we have the means to make the port and it's not at a loss, we're, we're kind of, we're happy, you know? And then getting the games, the getting the game in the hands of everyone who play it, we, you know, of course we're down for that, you know? That, I suppose that's the way I wanted to ask my question. Are you seeing mm-hmm. good engagement from Game Pass? That's the question I wanted to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, again, again, that's, it's, uh, there's it's always or often it will spike at first you know regardless of, w- of what you do because there's an announcement and then the, the, there's a blog post and then you know it's kind of about that for for a couple of days you know uh, on a bunch of platforms that have more visibility than just the one studio especially if you're indie you know um so we'll need to wait a little bit to be able to say for sure you know uh, mm-hmm. but but we're happy if if, if if that answers your question, we're, we're happy for sure. It does. It does. Now, you mentioned future projects. Sea mm-hmm. of Stars is, is yeah. a project that I would love to hear your elevator pitch. Tell me about Sea of Stars, what it is you're doing with it, and maybe release it. It's listed as 2022 right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's at the moment we're looking at the yeah 2022 release window, uh, which uh, a year is a big window, but uh, it's still too early to call a few things, you know, because uh, we have yet to to um, close in on you know our definition of done for this game. It's a bit more uh, intricate, you know, than a thing like Messenger, because we have dynamic lighting going on and there's you know post process and a lot more uh, tech artistry going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, so once again, we're starting from a script and it's been laid out and outlined with major beats uh, and we're just tackling, you know, we made it fun before we made it pretty. And, and now uh, because we, we had it, uh, we were at that point where we had um, some visuals for for a couple of areas, uh, we decided to announce it and show it because we wanted to do the, the, crowd, the crowdfund uh, route. So we did a, a Kickstarter in March. Uh, and so yeah, Sea of Stars. It's uh, well, it's retro inspired again for us. It's all about the retro aesthetics, uh, and then mixing them with modernized design. You know, and so that we can hopefully, uh, you know, we want to make games that hold up today, um, that also encapsulate how we felt playing games as kids. You know, uh, but then you know, controls used to be pretty stiff, and music used to be pretty repetitive, and difficulty way too high, and all of that. And so the idea is, how do we modernize these things so that they hold up by today's standards? while also, you know, carrying the emotions that we uh, so fondly remember. Um, and, and you've chosen to set it in the Messenger's universe. Of course, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, yes, or, or, or Messenger is in, the, you know, so it's it's all because it's a prequel. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of our games w- will be in the same universe uh, for Sabotage. That's the, that was the vision was to, um, so Messenger was a, a first contact, you know, uh, mm-hmm. with that universe. And Messenger is in the post-apocalyptic setting you know there's been a flood there's only the one island left and then that island got cursed and so then you're playing a ninja that is that has to carry a scroll across that island and so sea of stars is is before that flood so there's many islands you know 
uh, and so you're exploring all these these things, and it's all about you know the the, the wonders and you know the dungeons and all that. It's it's more of a high fantasy thing um, than a, a kind of dark ninja slash humor thing. Um, and so yeah, so it's about it's about essentially uh, an alchemist uh, who does transmutation and he creates monsters. He's called the Fleshmancer, and and so his monsters are are invincible to uh, regular humans, but the ones that are born uh, during a, a winter or summer solstice, they get the power of the moon or the sun, and so they become known as solstice warriors, and they they train, and they basically use lunar and solar magic, uh, and their powers are increased uh, when there's a total eclipse, and so they basically gather when there's an eclipse to take down the big monsters. So it's all about you know the the day and night cycles and the light, the dynamic lighting and all of that as you you know shoot suns and uh, and moon crescents. Dope. That just sounds so cool. <laughs> that just sounds so cool. Man, I mean, that's the awesome. stars, you know. It's uh, yeah, yeah. And and so that is set for a 2022 ish release, barring any any hiccups along the way. I would imagine it's too far out to specifically say what consoles or or platforms ahead yeah, we of haven't, time uh, yeah we haven't announced anything yet just because you know especially being at the turn of a new a new generation for consoles mm-hmm. it's you know, like we can't we can't make this call you know uh, and we're also we're just not big enough to honestly to to be in the know you know of of, of uh, the major plays that are about to happen you know we're, we're not like a a giant production with a giant studio that 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 gets told about these things five years in advance you know so we're doing our best to read the landscape and we'll adjust and and also it'll be you know uh, because another thing is we want to be where our players are you know uh, mm-hmm. with the kickstarter we have a, we had a very very big response uh, and so we want to stay in touch with them we don't know where these players will be in two years you know and so as the consoles get announced we're, we're staying in touch with our community and and if there's an overwhelming demand one way or another, we'll we'll uh, make sure to follow suit. Um, and so the other thing, though, is is we'll be getting feedback pretty soon because uh, backers uh, get access to a playable demo, which is coming out uh, in about a month. So um, That's the, cool. our play our playable demo is actually coming pretty soon. Yeah, because we realized, you know, just announcing it and then people want to play it, and you're like, yeah, you got to wait two years. So we knew we had to have something soon, you know. So. That's Very coming, cool. but that that's a PC only though, you know, because we want to keep it platform agnostic. Sure, sure. Now, last question for you then, if you don't mind, uh, and this sure. probably speaks to my ignorance just on a on a back end level. Does the design of of these upcoming consoles, knowing that they're they're more akin to PCs, does that ease some of the burdens in development for for someone like yourself? Well, for us, we're working with uh, in Unity, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The the game engine Unity, and the the thing that's neat about that is that they handle the uh, console portability, you know. Mm. And so they tell you essentially, like, uh, look, you got to use at least this version or whatever, you know, if mm-hmm. you want to be on X or Y uh, platform. Mm-hmm. And then as long as you do that, you know, and 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 that you you follow if you jump through a, a few technical hoops, of course, as always, you know, because sometimes the sound won't play on this or here or there and things like that. Uh, but usually, like about 95% of the job is is done already. So that's one of the perks of of using a, of using an engine, you know, is that if you make your own, then you have to you know, uh, support all the console and, and, and we didn't want to do, to have to do middleware. We just want to make the games, you know, and the rest is just the cost we pay up front to have access to, to take that, that lets us, uh, simply publish, you know? So very cool. Very cool. Well, Thierry, thank you so much for your time today. Would you please let p- people know where they can find you on social media? If they're interested in checking out the messenger, what many platforms they can find that and, uh, eyes to eyes where they should have their eyes for sea of stars. 
For sure, yeah. Well, so uh, there's a seaofstarsgame.co. That's our uh, website. And basically everything is there. It, li it links back to the Kickstarter, which uh, was done already in April. But you still have, you know, the video is up where I pitched the whole thing. And then you see footage of the game and all of that. Uh, and then Twitter is, is pretty much our biggest one. So at uh, seaofstarsgame, at uh, messengergame. And then I'm Sabotoy, uh, S-A-B-O-T-O-Y. And also on Facebook, uh, we're Sabotage QC. So Sabotage with the Q and a C at the end, because we're from Quebec. Uh, and yeah, that's about it. Thierry, thank you for your time today. Uh, thanks for having me.